After 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
jungle dawn. No matter what the soldiers said or how the rain would pour, Zadie always kept a smile and wiped the tears away. Nothing could ever keep him down when he'd start to say, It's Shabbos now, Shabbos now, and I will sing. Your family and your neighbors It's now your time Of winding steers and broken dreams Papa tries to sell a little more A penny here, a penny there Mama cries and clothes she told My Zadie always kept a smile And wiped her tears away Soon things will turn around Soon we're gonna say It's Shabbos now Shabbos now
JM in the AM. There you have it. Friday morning broadcast with eighth day. It's Shabbos now is the name of that selection. That's a good one. Uh, before that, you heard um, Derech Achim with Lachad Odili. Krat Shabbat was done by Shlomo Katcher. Yaakov Shweki in there with Kamu. Regesh, of course. Modani opened things up. And we say good morning. It's 6.30 in the morning on a Friday, August the 17th, day 6. In the month of Elul, the year 5778, Tavshanayin Ches, Erev Shabbos Parsha Shoftim with candle lighting at 731 on this Erev Shabbos, 731. We blow Shofar today, of course, a, a non-Shabbos day in the month of Elul. Our Sephardic friends are saying Slichot. We're getting closer and closer to Rosh Hashanah, believe it or not. Plenty happening here on a Friday, including Malcolm Honeline, 7.40 Eastern Time, one hour and eight minutes from now. He's expected to join us for the weekly update. Malcolm Honeline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update just over an hour from now here at JM in the AM. 79 degrees, 78% humidity, winds are south at 4. Partly cloudy, a high of 89, another hot one. And thunderstorms for tonight, a low 75 Tomorrow, cloudy and a high temperature, 86 degrees. 83 right now in Yerushalayim. We're at 79 here in New York City as we say good morning on a Friday at JM in the AM. Keep it here, everybody. Plenty going on, of course, until 9 a.m., as you would suspect on a Friday. And um, and we're glad you're here with us for this uh, amazing and incredible broadcast. Yeah, can you have an amazing and incredible broadcast in the month of August? And the answer is yes, believe it or not. Moshav Band is next. You're listening to JM in the AM.
میشه میشه متانا توی با یشلی یشلی بیش که نازای میشه میشه متانا توی با یشلی یشلی بیش که نازای میشه میشه متانا توی با
JM in the AM. He calls it the Chizuk Nigun on the brand new Nishamala album. That's Yehuda Green, of course. Two weeks away from his big Saturday night slichas at the Westside Institutional Synagogue for the Kalbach Shul. It is uh, always an amazing and incredible event. That is uh, Yehuda Green here at JM in the AM. Uh, before that, a song that I, I think is one of the most amazing salutes to Shabbos I ever heard. That's Shlemy Gertner with, uh, with Shabbos. Netzach Yisrael was Yaakov Shweki. Ari Goldwag had Moshe, another great Shabbos song. Yerachmiel in the choir with Mazel Tov and Yevarechecha and the Moshav band in there with Bowie. Eighth day had its Shabbos now. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSingle.com. On the NachumSingle Network and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. we got problems with our news from Israel this morning. So we will move into hour number two and remind you that Malcolm Honline is going to join us. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He speaks with us 40 minutes from now with the weekly update right here at JM in the AM. Even 
J.M. in the A.M. Oh, sorry about that. One second. There we go. J.M. in the A.M. Friday morning broadcast. Uh, up. That's done by Oni Z. Brand new. Shim Kramer. Brand new with Aishas Chayel. Mazel tov, mazel tov to him and his family. They're now in Israel for their first Shabbat as Olim. Uh, well, you know, as a full family. Simcha Liner with Merake. You heard Yibane done by Shalshelis to open up the 7 o'clock hour. Friday morning broadcast on this era of Shabbos Parsha Shoftim. Candle lighting 731 on this era of Shabbos, in New York at least, 731 candle lighting. We blow shofar. We'll do that, I guess, about 15 minutes from now or so. Slichus is being said by our Sephardic friends. We are getting deep into the end of 5778. 79 degrees outside, partly cloudy, high 89. 
Tomorrow, high 86. You are lying right now at 83. We're at 79 in New York City as we say good morning at JM and the AM. Malcolm Holmline will join us about 25 minutes from now. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Malcolm Holmline joins us for the weekly update coming up right here at JM in the AM. <laughs> Hashem Hashem Elokecho bechol bechol evovcho bechol nafshecho Oh after es Hashem es Hashem Elokecho bechol bechol evovcho bechol nafshecho Somebody 
השמיים יש ארמון, והמלך ובניו שמחים, כולנו עומדים יד ביד כמו אחים. כן, אנחנו בפנים. Lanu 
AM. It's Friday morning on this era of Shabbos Parsha Shoftim with candle lighting at 731 here in New York. 731 candle lighting. I want to get to our Elul chauffeur blowing. It's around this time Monday through Thursday because that's when Rabbi Goldwasser uh, closes out his comments and that's when we usually play the uh, chauffeur blowing. Today we'll do it at the, uh, you know, at approximately the same time. How do you like that? Yeah, that's how we... We've made a chauffeur decision here at JM and the M. Want to take this opportunity and um, remind everybody that our Elul chauffeur blowing this morning is um, being sponsored. Well, it's actually being sponsored on the 27th of August, the 16th of Elul as well. But we'll do it for today just because um, this generous donor went ahead and. Uh, and reserve the 27th of August. Uh, it is being done by Gene Berkovich in memory of his grandparents, 17th yard site of Kasia Bas Mordechai and 77th yard site of Yosef Ben Yitzchak. Our Elul chauffeur blowing to remind everybody that we are in fact blowing the chauffeur in the month of Elul until Erev Rosh Hashanah. Here it is at JM in the AM. That's our LL show for blowing. More coming up here at JM in the AM. Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents, Major American Jewish Organizations, will join us for the weekly update. Keep it here at JM in the AM.
J.M. in the A.M. That is the um, Avramel uh, selection, Itcha Ani, Yesh Tikva, done by Benny Friedman before that. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. On this uh, Erev Shabbos Parsha Shoftim with candle lighting time 731 in the New York area. 731, a lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. I want to thank our friends at OnlySimplis.com. OnlySimplis.com, continuing to utilize our content for their amazing news feed, which you should be checking out every single day. Go to OnlySimplis.com and make that a daily habit. You'll be glad you did. Our friends at JewishWorldReview.com, JewishWorldReview.com, they give you the opportunity to uh, print out, oh, I don't know, thousands of articles about Israel and the Jewish world before Shabbos. Go to JewishWorldReview.com. You should do that every day as well and check out the latest of what they have to offer. You'll be glad you did. Again, JewishWorldReview.com. Please keep in mind Shmuel David Ben Chava for Rafur Shlema. Shmuel David Ben Chava for Rafur Shlema, and we thank you for that. And please keep in mind Mayor Ben Chana for Rafur Shlema. Again, that's Mayor Ben Chana for Rafur Shlema, and we thank you for that. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's good to be back and hear your dulcet tones once again. I appreciate that. There are a lot of people out there who are ready to stone me that you had not appeared in a couple of weeks on this show, so I'm very glad you're back. And I well, thank the first you. week was your fault. That's correct. Everything else is mine. <laughs> the man takes responsibility. You own it. What is it's so? These days, it's so nice to see somebody own it when they do something that people object to. Well, welcome back, and I thank you. All right, so you know what everyone's uh, primarily, I mean, there are a lot of things that people are primarily interested in, but the number one item of the last couple of weeks, of course, is what's happening uh, in Gaza, the fire kites, the terrorism, uh, the attempts, it seems, by both Israel and Egypt, maybe toss some Hamas leadership in there, I don't know, you could tell us, to have some type of ceasefire. Could you tell us what the situation is currently? Well, it's uh, certainly in flux, and um, the, the um, and there are various levels about when you analyze it, what's happening. First is between Israel and Hamas. There are definitely talks going on that would uh, more or less mimic the twenty fifteen, the twenty fourteen agreement after the the war, the last war, where there would be uh, various phases, including one where the MIAs being held in, in the bodies being held by Hamas and two um, people, two Israelis who crossed the border, would be returned in exchange for a prisoner, uh, a large number of Hamas prisoners. That obviously arouses a lot of resentment. Second, there would be a big investment in Gaza, uh, industrial investment, business development. Uh, a sea lane that Israel would monitor and would have security control of between Gaza and Cyprus uh, and various other components. Uh, this is uh, Egypt is playing a very critical role in the, in the negotiations, and it's an, essentially another quiet-for-quiet quiet deal. Uh, I'm sure the people in Steyrot and other areas are very skeptical because Hamas always takes advantage of it for the time they need to rebuild Israel hit them very hard during recent weeks. Uh, the one day where you had a, over 100 uh, raids, I think as many as 150, in fact, was very effective. And Hamas 
um, essentially had to, to give in, and they're losing support amongst the people in Gaza for the demonstrations and for the uh, the actions. They continue to launch the uh, incendiary devices, which have caused a, a lot of damage, destroyed a lot of businesses. Uh, people are complaining why Israel didn't go in and just carpet bomb, and others say there has to be a land invasion. These are obviously very complicated, and Israel has to consider the loss of life that it would suffer. Hamas, for its very raison d'etre, needs to have a conflict. I don't think that long-term they will retain much support, except for the fact that they have a, you know, their reason to exist is to, to fight Israel. Then you have the second level, which is the PA versus Hamas, which is not progressed, and Abbas wants to boycott all of the talks. He, he um, they have left open the government positions that the Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, should come in and take over uh, the government because Hamas can't afford it. They have no money and resources. The funding from Qatar has been uh, cut, the traditional funding, and, and transferred through or in conjunction with the IDF in other ways. The Iranians have cut back on their funding. Turkey also being economically squeezed is cutting back. So they they are in a rather desperate situation. There's no gasoline, there's the water shortages, electricity is only two hours a day. And part of it is, is uh, uh, Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, wanted to cut it because they wanted to build the pressure on and didn't want to negotiate with Hamas, wanted them just to give in. Uh, so that battle is still going, and it, it sort of uh, reflects on the Abbas's refusal to talk to the Americans, talk to the Israelis on a peace process as well. And people question what is the value of a ceasefire if it's just with uh, if it's just with Hamas, what about right. Islamic Jihad, what about some of the other groups? Can they really uh, control control the um, the area? So my my bet is a short term for sure, longer term questionable. Um, well, you, I'm sure you've been in Israel recently with all the traveling and stuff, so you might, you may know, you know, close to or possibly accurately in terms of the damage. Do we know what the statistic is? And I hate to boil it down to a stat, but do you, do you know what the statistic is in terms of, of fire damage in Israel South? Do we know how many, I don't know, square kilometers or how many small towns or kibbutzim or yishuvim? Do we know anything that would give us a perspective and what the enemy has done? Well, we did keep track of the numbers, uh, but it, it, they've really amounted so much. Uh, uh, even a month ago, it was about 8,000 acres. So we'd all be stunned by what it is today. It's very large, and that's part of the problem, is that people uh, discount these balloons and uh, kites and other things, but they land on buildings, they land, uh, and you have to look at some of the pictures of the farms destroyed at a time when you have the harvest coming in. You have uh, buildings that were destroyed. One landed, as you know, in the kindergarten, and thank God the kids were evacuated and the damage was, was more limited. But you had forests, and we have nature reserves, aside from the air pollution and water pollution, from the burning of tires and from all of the um, fires that were set, and yet you don't hear any of those people uh, uh, speaking out. So the, the answer is the amount of the, the destruction is much greater than people realize because they launch hundreds of these um, balloons or, or whatever they're using that day, and it's, it, they can't take them all down, and you can't chase each one of them. 
so they they uh, yeah the the amount of damage I think when it's finally calculated it, it's going to run into the tens of millions of dollars, and we will see what happens. By the way, I think one of the issues that that will come up, you know, the Fata has called the boss has called the um, for a meeting. I think on Wednesday, uh, and the issues they're going to talk about is Israel, Hamas, Trump. Uh, but the real question that will be beneath the surface is the succession issue. Oh, wow. Because, you know, he was elected in 2005. Right. He's already into the so the 13th year of his four-year term. And the um, the question of ceasefire, all these things will, will escalate the interest. They're very angry, obviously, at the Trump administration and U.S. policy um, because they did the right thing. And he, he obviously uh, objects to it. But there's a, a, a lot of talk because he's older. He's, you know, people don't necessarily like the fact that he refuses to talk, but he controls uh, right now the apparatus. Right. I asked you about the comparison or, or about the statistic regarding the land down south. What about the we are and you alluded to this minutes ago that that, that there has been some activity um, vis-a-vis Israel bombing. Gaza going in and and uh, you know with targeted strikes etc. Is there any comparison to the damage that Israel was able to do four years ago, or or it's almost nothing compared to that? It, it was not no, nothing. It was quite serious what Israel did. They uh, the, the reason why you don't read so, as much about it is because they are doing it in a targeted way, and civilian casualties are very limited. But when you take out a hundred to hundred and fifty targets in a single day. They hit the headquarters of Hamas. People said they saw the papers flying out of the debris, right. and um, they have done targeted hits against some of the leadership. People are arguing that they should have done more of that. But the, the um, um, you know Israel does not want to see a complete collapse in Gaza because then number one it could fall on them. It's also why Israel. The IDF urged the United States not to cut all the funding of of UNRWA because if you don't have the money for the schools for other things, humanitarian efforts, we want to see reform, but they want to see the flow because the the total collapse will impact Israel as well. And the um, um, so Israel didn't go in and do carpet bombing, which you saw some people called for made a decision that they would try to limit the civilian casualties. They get no credit for that anywhere in the world. And the, the, but the impact on the infrastructure of Hamas is great. You know, it's interesting, and I guess this is obvious to many, but it, it, with all this that's going on, with the ceasefire um, uh, attempts that are being made, uh, when I speak, or anybody I think in this audience, when we speak to I don't know members of the media from Israel or, or members of the IDF who are visiting here from Israel or just you know tra- trainees in Israel um, who people come in contact with, especially now during the summer, uh, there's more interaction. It, it, it seems like everybody is is prepared for an immediate call up, and I guess again that that's not unusual. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that that's you know the usual practice in general in Israel, but. But I, I don't know, when you speak to certain people, you get the idea like we are you know, minutes away from a real declaration of war in the area. But again, I assume that just because that's the way Israel must be, otherwise their uh, military wouldn't be as effective as it would be in the long run. 
Well, you're right that uh, that, that was the, the the reports, and I think that no one yet believes that that is still not an option. Uh, the escalation has become intolerable. The damage, the, what, what's happened to life along the border areas, and, and even further, the fact that a rocket hit Beersheba was really a, a red line that was crossed. Right. Good point. About yeah. a stronger response. So I, I don't think it was idle chatter about the possibility that Israel was going to go all out. It may also be partially a tactic to put Hamas on notice that they were ready to move and... and um, and I believe that they that they were ready that that this was uh, you know uh, a decision that might have been reached, but they're giving all the other options a chance so that no one can say later <clears throat> you didn't try everything. And mm-hmm. the Egyptian involvement is also you know for Israel very critical. Now, if the South has many angles and tentacles to it, the North really has a lot of angles and tentacles to it, and uh, that's because of uh, Hezbollah and the Lebanese border, and Iran, and their presence in Syria, and the the conflict in general along the Israeli-Syrian border, which you could tell us if it's any better or worse. And then you have uh, you know Putin, the U.S., and Netanyahu either debating or discussing whether they want Iran out of Syria or not. By the way, start there for a minute. It does seem that that the reports are in the most recent editions uh, uh, of the of the press that that Putin and uh, and and Trump would would both like the Iranian presence in Syria to be gone. Would you, would you, do we believe Putin when it comes to that? Yes, because he, well, he can't pull them out right away, and they were allies, and it's not just Iran getting out, it's getting out Iran's uh, tens of thousands of Shiite militia, more of whom are integrated into the Syrian forces. The Syrian forces are spent, their own, they're exhausted, their, their numbers have diminished greatly, they don't have enough manpower, they've succeeded in in capturing virtually the whole country uh, with Russian backing. As you see in the Golan now, you have Russian police moving in and Syria wanting to turn over the area adjacent to the Golan to the UN forces, uh, the UNIFIL forces, and the UNIFIL's mandate is coming up, and we hope that they will be uh, more effective, but they certainly didn't live up to Resolution 1701, Security Council Resolution, which should have banned weapons coming into the area, that there was supposed to be one uh, military force not having Hezbollah separate from the Lebanese army. The Lebanese army is weaker than Hezbollah today. The, but Hezbollah seems to want to keep the border quiet. They don't want a war right now, Nasrallah. Um, uh, and so the, all the action is shifted to the Syrian part of the border with Israel. And there you have uh, a number of factors. One, of course, the Syrian army itself. The second, the and and Egypt, uh, I'm sorry, Russia has outposts, about eight outposts that are manned by their uh, police. Uh, this is more as observers and um, uh, monitors. Then you have the uh, situation along the Israeli-Syrian uh, border, where we've had incursions. You have uh, groups, including ISIS and others, not just the uh, Iranians, that have. Um, continued attempts to bring in uh, more and more sophisticated weapons and Israel acting uh, to try and, and limit that. So the, the the action, there's so many layers. And Putin, his interest is in keeping Assad, which seems now to be achieved. Second, he does not want to have the competition with Iran. They still have a lot of animosity, although they need each other right now, just as Turkey and Russia uh, are needing each other. 
the Syrian economy, three quarters of it has been destroyed. Their foreign reserves in 2010 were $71 billion. By 2015, we're down to $1 billion. So today, it's probably uh, um, non-existent. And so Syria's interest is not to have a war with Israel. It's to quiet things down. It's to restore their control. It is to... Um, uh, try to rebuild the infrastructure, and there are many who want to do that so, so that this, the refugees will go back. And they're talking about uh, programs to, to increase the spending, but the, um, if you look at the numbers, uh, what the Syrian uh, budget is and what the available money for government spending, it's, it's a fraction of what it was before. So you, you have a, you know, a pretty desperate situation within Syria, Still don't have you still have the presence of a lot of uh, rogue groups. You still have areas where there's fighting, uh, where the U.S. troops are against ISIS together with the Kurds, and then the question of what happens to the Kurdish areas. You have the Turks fighting uh, along their border as well, and it's uh, it's still far from uh, um, an un, uh, far from a, a stable deal. Iran gave a credit of I think of 6.9 billion dollars from an export bank and has continue to provide money uh, to Iran, to Syria, so Russia doesn't want to see that gone because they don't want to have to replace it and they don't have the money to replace it because Russia's economy is not strong. Putin is very clever in how he can manipulate the situation. But all of them distrust the um, the uh, uh, Iranians, although we had some developments this week where there is a deal made on the Caspian and that's really important. Again, most media don't cover it or don't understand it, but Russia, Iran, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan, these are the literal states, meaning the bordering states of the Caspian Sea. This took 22 years of talks, but now this is the largest enclosed body of water in the world and has about 48 billion barrels of oil and 9 trillion cubic meters of natural gas. And uh, there's still a question of designation a sea or a lake, and everybody, I'm sure, laughs and said, what's the difference? The difference is how you apportion the wealth, because if it's sea, then um, it, if it's a lake, every nation just gets 20%, meaning five countries, each one one-fifth. If it's a sea, then it's dependent upon how big your border is, and Iran would be the big loser there. Wow, that's interesting. So, so that, that deal signed this week, and you see that almost no coverage um, uh, of this very significant thing. And one of the things they do is they're barring NATO from from the Caspian. At least that's what the Iranians announced. And also the Iranians announced that they were responsible, that they gave the orders to the Houthis in Yemen to attack the two Saudi tankers, and they, they attacked. And he, this General Shabani, we've talked about in the past, who's uh, the top guy of the Iran Revolutionary Guard, uh, said this in an interview, and that they had ordered these um, the pro-Iranian Houthis in Yemen to carry out the attack. Uh, Saudi Arabia stopped allowing its tankers to go through the Bab al-Mandab, through the straits there. Um, but it's interesting that once it was uh, revealed by memory, it was deleted from the Fars uh, Iranian websites. So they realized that this could be potentially very dangerous for them and further evidence of their real role in the region. So Iran is going to continue. They need this presence. They want this transnational 
a highway that will go through um, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and, uh, and um, Iran. This is critical for their hegemony and for their Persian Empire. The United States just created a new special task force that Brian Hook will be the special representative for Iran to, to develop longer-term uh, policies. What I thought was really interesting is that Khamenei admitted yesterday that they made a mistake in letting the foreign minister Zarif carry out the negotiations and generally doing the negotiations on the deal. He said he thought it would bring foreign investment, and he realizes now that it's a mistake. Well, yeah, it was a mistake, and what we saw just in 24 hours that there's a, a renewable energy investor, Kirkus, in from Great Britain that had a 500 million dollar euro, a uh, 500 million euro solar plant that they were power plant, and they pulled out. Then on Tuesday, the Belfinger, which is the, one of the giant engineering groups in Germany, said it's not renewing any business. And the uh, an automotive supply company said it, it halted all activity. So again, we're seeing, despite all the European you know, promises and urging of companies and going after the Indians and others to stay there, their own companies are all pulling out. And, and this is still before the November implementation of the oil sanctions, which is coming. Even, uh, you know, they, they fell, the exports fell about 1.2 million barrels in the previous administration. Now it's happening, the decrease is even bigger and faster uh, in terms of the number of barrels a day that are, are disappearing off the market coming from there because um, shipments in Europe, the UAE, and Japan, uh, have and half the flow to India, have reduced their Iranian exports by about 1.5 million barrels a day uh, over the last six months. And these numbers may not seem significant, but when you're talking about an economy that's on the margin and their ability to do a lot of the mischief depends on how much money, and obviously they take the money away from the people, but this is, anybody can hear these numbers, can understand how dire the situation could become for Iran and how important the sanctions are. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at com, on the Nahum Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Whose economy is in worse shape, Syria or Iran? Well, we have a three-way competition right now. Syria is obviously devastated. They have nothing going on uh, virtually most of the, as I uh, indicated, most of the infrastructure. Uh, I could give you all the statistics, but you know, if three quarters of the economy is destroyed, so they are by far worse. But Iran is half the country's in a drought. They don't have clean drinking water in much of the country. The um, industries are closing. Unemployment is probably 40% or higher, 60% in some areas. The um, their the government is begging people to use dollars and gold because they have shortage of their foreign reserves. The um, uh, many companies obviously not selling to them, and so they are in. Uh, uh, there are serious shortages uh, of goods. You see that you don't see, but there are demonstrations virtually every day being carried out against the government by various sectors. Uh, the farmers are, are their, their land is parched. They're not producing, and this is a time when normally they would be. So the economy of Iran has been severely hurt by the sanctions, and Europeans can't compensate for it. Then you also have Turkey's economy is in collapse. The, the currency
currency of Iran over the last year dropped 90%. I think the currency of, of uh, Turkey has dropped probably 40 or 40% or more just in recent weeks and, and months. And, the, um, and they are also being hit by the sanctions, and it hurts them. It's, it's uh, ex- uh, taking a toll. And tourism is down. Other things are down in terms of uh, uh, of Turkey. Erdogan is very adamant. Qatar said they would put $15 billion into their banks. We'll, we'll see whether they actually um, do it. They are, are leaning towards Moscow increasingly. The United States cut off the sale of the Congress, cut off the sale of the F-35s, the stealth bombers, which they were supposed to get 100 over the next 10 years. So that has been put on hold at the very least. And as I said, the, the next round of sanctions is uh, there could be more sanctions coming against uh, Turkey as well. Uh, so, uh, With that in uh, mind, why is he so strong when he speaks about the U.S. and the President of the United States? Do you think Erdogan would be a little bit more diplomatic if he's in that type of situation and doesn't want more sanctions? Well, partially it's Erdogan's character. You have to know him. He has uh, very glorified visions of himself and of, of his aspirations for the Ottoman Empire, like the Persian Empire that Khomeini wants. Um, you know, he is still exporting his, uh, his vision of Islam, which is a Muslim Brotherhood-type vision, and building mosques all over Europe. And the, there are more more revelations about this, about the extent of control and how much he is, um, how active he is in in spreading this his message in his terms. So he has, you know, uh, he, uh, there are many people who feel that he has uh, distorted visions, and some have even stronger views. I'm talking about leaders in the region. But he has a strong army. It's it's been hurt badly by all of the arrests. But the, his pilot crew is down to a couple hundred, three hundred or so, because he put so many military people, like judicial, judicial, like the media, like others, when he arrested a uh, hundred thousand people, and he's still arresting people, charging them with being part of the you know the revolution, and all traced to Feta Gulen who's in Pennsylvania, and because America doesn't deport him to Iran, to, to Turkey, he's very upset. There's also a movement by uh, journalists now to go after the U.S. presence at the Inserlik Air Force Base, which is a very critical base, a huge base in which we have invested a, a lot of money. And they're charging that they they want uh, the courts to arrest the pilots because they're saying they, too, are involved in the overthrow, which is all obviously concocted and made up. But the United States is shifting assets away from Inserlik to other bases. Is there a diplomatic channel still open between Turkey and Israel? Yes, there are. Well, the ambassadors are there, and, and the fact is that trade has by and large remained stable, generally increasing over the years, uh, recent years when the uh, vitriol was, uh, uh, was uh, flowing. Um, you have various attempts at, at um, flotillas. That Israel has moved quickly and, and efficiently to block them. We had one coming from Gaza even, but uh, others, that uh, one that, that came out of um, Palermo but had been all over Europe and obviously f- failed to penetrate. And the, um, um, and the Turks are still very much behind a lot of these movements. We know, you know, the Mavi Mamara, we know that the, the Turkish uh, officials were, and government uh, supported some of these efforts. He's certainly putting money into Jerusalem. 
and uh, our hope now is that because of the the economic conditions that obtain there, uh, he will be much more limited in what he can do. Wow. Um, what, what's with the uh, Gaza mail? You saw that, that all the... the what is the story? <laughs> that they, that they're, they're, it happens here, too. You know, you see all these guys who hoard the mail and then they deliver it or don't. Oh, so this was not Israel, and this is the way people are painting it. This is not Israel holding back mail as a punishment. Well, no, it probably was that the... the well, you don't have connections. There's no interaction between right. Israel and Gaza. Who are you going to turn the mail over to? But they did, as part of this, turn over. Uh, I, I don't know if it was a government policy right. or a rogue policy. Uh, all right. We all want to know about elections. Um, <laughs> and by the way, if there are early elections, is it only going to be because of this draft law debate that can't be resolved? No. Uh, it might be for other reasons as well. Uh, absolutely. And the likelihood that you'll have elections, I think, grows. The Knesset goes out of session till after October, till after the Sukkot, and the holidays. And the, the um, when he comes back, there, there are very good chances that he will call for elections. Uh, he's using this as leverage with the religious parties, saying they had two weeks that he would announce elections if they don't, because he, they don't want to go to elections. And I think most most of the parties don't see any gain for themselves if they're in elections. Uh, Likud would probably be the biggest gainer. That will depend, of course, what happens with his legal problems and and other issues in the interim. The um, um, but there are a variety of reasons why he he would want to do it. He he might want to do this before any indictment or anything comes down. But you need to give at least three months' notice. Mm-hmm. So that means the elections wouldn't be held until the beginning of next year and. Elections are generally already scheduled, I think, for for uh, 2019. So it would be much later in the year. This way, it would be uh, a, a little bit earlier. Right. Uh, the practice of questioning radical extremists who visit Israel, it does not bother me at all. What do you say about it? It generally doesn't bother me. It's a question of how it's done. I think that it was inappropriate for the prime minister to issue an apology. This should have come from a much lower level person. It escalates it. It makes it seem like it was an official decision when I'm sure it wasn't. And that they, you know, I, I get questioned when I go to Israel. Everybody gets questioned. And so if the questions became more political, then... Um, there may be reason, there may not. So I think it's a policy should be reviewed. I think they have every right to, to keep out those that are considered a threat to the country, and those who are not should be, um, you know, there should be some more dis, uh, careful screening that uh, you don't have a situation where somebody who, who didn't pose a threat and is coming for a family event or whatever shouldn't be subjected uh, to that kind of treatment. But you know the the question the question there are a lot of questions about you know the government now the uh, how it functions and yet the economy is stronger moody's rating them a1 you got a lot of positive developments in terms of the economic uh, news from israel so maybe it's just better to have a limited government and let everybody just do their thing <laughs> Is it relevant? Is it relevant if Jeremy Corbyn once visited the Knesset or did anything uh, in terms of a visit to Israel? Is that relevant to 2018? It's not relevant in the sense that uh, what he has done, the anti-Semitic stuff, the fact that now the revelations that he laid a wreath in, in Tunisia, the graves of the people carried out the attacks on the Israeli athletes at Munich, I mean, there has to be some point where everybody says it's enough. The guy has flirted with anti-Semitism, if not engaged in it. The um, 
the, all the Jewish newspapers last Friday or weekend in, in Great Britain published a joint editorial against Corbyn. Uh, the, the record is clear. There cannot be tolerance. You can't have the major party in Great Britain, the second major party, led by somebody who holds these beliefs, and there is no uh, attempt to root him out and to, to punish. And I have to say that, you know, it, it, it contributes to the general climate in Britain, but also, I think, impacts in Europe. Uh, and the, uh, the, I am equally concerned about the developments here when we see candidates emerging here, Democrat and Republican, who are uh, espouse Holocaust denial, anti-Semitic views, certainly anti-Israel views, and uh, I, I see the phenomenon of what we saw in Europe with losing the center happening here. I get every morning a report about statements made by candidates around the country, mostly for congressional offices, some even unchallenged. Uh, this woman, uh, uh, Palestinian-American woman, who says she's going to vote against AIDS Israel, etc., and, and is very articulate, gets on television like the, uh, the woman in Queens and others, uh, and they are impacting beyond just their congressional borders. And, uh, and the media loves them, loves to put them on for, forward because they are a different uh, point of view, and they challenge Israel, they challenge some of the conventions that we rely on in terms of U.S.-Israel relations. And you know that the Congress passed overwhelmingly extremely pro-Israel legislation in the last couple of weeks when we were off, uh, increasing the aid package way beyond the $3.3 billion in many areas, in uh, counter-drone and anti-missile, in so many areas where they expanded uh, the assistance to uh, to Israel. So Congress and the administration would be thanked, and, and thank God support remains strong. But I am worried about the undercurrents. I am worried about the trends in American politics, which tend to mimic what goes on, I believe, particularly in Britain, but in Europe. And there, the, the center has lost. The parties move to the extreme right, extreme left. And I fear that that could happen here, and it means that we all have to examine this. We have to get the parties to. We've got to show zero tolerance when it comes to people who espouse anti-Semitic views, just as they wouldn't tolerate racist views. And the, the, if we cannot allow Israel to become a partisan issue. And the increasing polarization, I think, poses a long-term danger for us. And on top of that, it's, not, it's realistic to say that Corbyn can become prime minister there. Uh, uh, exactly. That's why they have to get rid of him now, and and make it very clear that this is that you cannot have a labor party. And I want to see Tony Blair. I want to hear all of the other labor and former labor officials speak out. Many of them have. I'm not saying people haven't. And the Jewish community there, uh, I think, has uh, found its voice with this, the editorials. It's one thing. That, the problem is the editorials speak more to the Jewish community, right. but they did get coverage in the general media. Um. The uh, the the United Nations General Assembly, we were told last week, uh, falls on Cholamoid Sukkis, and I assume it doesn't prevent the Prime Minister from coming in and addressing the General Assembly, right? So, uh, unfortunately, it always clashes with some yontif because it's in September, and it's going to. There are two days before yontif, I think, when the uh, session will begin or the people will be arriving because we have meetings with all the heads of state and foreign ministers during these days this year will be much more uh, abbreviated. The prime minister is going to come after the second day of Yontif. He can leave the second day of Yontif right. uh, from Israel right here probably that night um, or the next morning. So he will be here from 
I think it's a Wednesday. Yeah, so his speech will either be Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, it won't be Wednesday. It'll so be Thursday, or it could be Friday, but it's, right. it's likely Thursday, and he will go back uh, Motzei Shabbos. Um, the, he has to be back for some chastor in Israel. Israel is uh, being accused, or the Mossad is being accused, uh, of um, taking out this Syrian scientist. Do you know that I think there's more reaction in the international press when Israel is accused of taking out a terrorist leader than when they take out a Syrian scientist? And you would think that the Syrian scientist might have more of a legitimate reason to 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 be you know given the opportunity to live than the terrorist leader would be. Uh, are you sometimes surprised that there's not more of an international reaction or uh, or outrage when we hear that Israel's being accused of taking out a scientist? Actually, I am. But uh, I hope that Israel, or friends of Israel, took him out, um, is a very dangerous guy. He had built and was now rebuilding their uh, chemical weapon, other weapons capacity. Um, and, and you have to understand that when you, you, you taking out a terrorist leader is very critical. Right. But these guys can have a bigger impact if, in fact, he succeeded in, and you saw the nuclear scientists in Iran that met unfortunate accidents, right. and others, just think if they hadn't, how much more advanced Iran's uh, nuclear program would be, just as one taking out OC, the OC reactor in Iraq and the reactor in Syria, yeah, what but... our troops and everybody would have faced. But I am surprised sometimes that there isn't more reaction, but the fact is that people, countries do this. Yeah, I get that, but uh, I don't know the uh, the uh, the underlying uh, feeling. I always think is that you know they they are innocent compared to what a you know a terrorist involved in regular terrorist. No, they're is. not. They're responsible no, I, for many more I, deaths I, than most I, of the terrorist I know, leaders. But most people and don't. One really... of the reasons you don't get more criticism is because most countries are relieved because you you think about what would have happened in Syria had they been allowed to develop all of these things. So they can cause by virtue of the research and the. The chemical weapons you saw how, how, how much the how many people those chemical weapons these guys developed uh, killed in Syria, let alone what they can do in the region. So people are relieved if if the um, if this program is is killed by killing him. Right. Yeah, I get that. And world leaders, I assume, would fall into that category. Just the media, I don't think, falls into that category. That's why I'm somewhat surprised. Uh, yeah. uh, Malcolm, were they waiting for the movie? I guess. Then they'll know if it's legitimate or not, depending on how the, <laughs> how the movie ends. Uh, if Hollywood tells them it is, then hey, then they're fine. Um, finally, um, not to put you on the spot, but could, but could you weigh in on the Ron Lauder, Naftali Bennett debate? Because I found that something interesting last week. I, I heard a presentation from the, um, I don't remember his exact position, but somebody in a high position at Birthright, and someone asked him about the legitimacy of, you know, paying for this type of program, the one that sends students to Israel. They weren't challenging him, just, you know, they wanted to know what the feeling was. And he said, by the way, another fringe benefit of all this is that these people come back and strengthen the Jewish community of the United States. And I'm saying to myself, wow, you know, we've gotten to this point where now when, when Jews anywhere in the world need something, they turn to Israel, as opposed to when Israeli Jews need something, they're turning to the U.S. and other countries. That's why the Ron Lauder argument from my standpoint seems so weak because it is almost becoming irrelevant to Israelis whether there is Jewish American support of Israel. Agree or not? 
It's a shifting situation. Israel today is stronger. It's no... Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, all of us remember the days when our families would send food or coffee or toilet paper and stuff to Israel. Today, Israel is a high-tech marvel. Israel is strong. Israel has more independence. But ultimately, Israel still needs... And the National Security Council did an assessment and showed how the diaspora Jewish communities are a strategic asset, a vital asset uh, of Israel. And IDF agrees, everybody else agrees. So we can't afford a split. Uh, um, and I think that there has to be greater sensitivity, greater understanding. But I don't think we can blame Israel for the alienation of American youth, that people give no Jewish education and background to their children until they're 18, send them to Israel on a birthright trip, which I think is very important, and and if it's done right, and has an impact uh, on them. Uh, but the, the, the fact is that every day we are losing hundreds of Jews, and it's not because of Israel. Now, has there been, is there a sense of alienation or more growth of indifference towards Israel? Yes, there's a growth of indifference towards everything, but we have it in particular in Israel, and when you have you know, the the documentation, uh, like it was presented, I think that it was a mistake, and I've told it to him, that uh, he should, if he wanted to impact Israel, they should have published it in Hebrew in Israel. And ah, let the people of Israel read it and think about it. The problem is, in the New York Times, right. it becomes a, a weapon in, uh, against uh, against Israel, and they're all too happy to, to be part of it. And Ronald Lord is a great supporter of Israel, a great supporter of Jewish education, and many amazing things that, that he has done. But first of all, throwing in everything into this thing, the, the, the rabbi who got arrested in Haifa had nothing to do with a federal government policy, some local decision. And because he did something that violated the law, that they raided his house at the, you know, in the morning and all that, I thought was really dumb, and I said so. Right. But you can't throw it. And the nation-state bill does not say things that people are saying. I'm talking about in general now. And there are ways that they could have done this better. I don't know. You know, a lot of people feel it was unnecessary in Israel. A lot of people feel it was necessary, but it could have been done smarter. There are problems, and there has to be sensitivity. But also there are so many who exploit these issues and want to drive divisions for, for their own purposes, because they, politically in Israel, you know, they get visibility, they attack the government. Here, people get the notice, and, you know, there are all sorts of people, organizations, marginal, who, who exploit any tension with Israel for their own purposes. So, you know, when, you know, wise people have to be wise with our words, it applies to everybody, and especially the time when we have uh, Israel under increasing assault and criticism, the BDS, the, these Congress people, they will draw comfort because when somebody who is so pro-Israel and so been so active, and who didn't, I think, intended for that to have that impact, um, uh, says things like that, it is very harmful. All right, uh, Malcolm, you around next week? I, God willing, will be here next week. All right, we look forward to it. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We are glad that the weekly update is back up and rolling here at JM in the AM. Friday morning, era of Shabbos, as we introduce Rabbi Yudin, I ask everybody to please keep in mind the Rafur Shlema from Mayor Ben-Chana. Again, that's Mayor Ben-Chana. And um, we will also... Um, we will also um, I use the opportunity of Rabbi Yudin's Dwar Torah uh, to remind everybody that it's done in memory of Malka Bas uh, Michal. Again, that's Malka Bas Michal. And um, 
And that is that. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, candle lighting at 731 in New York. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Shoftim. According to the Chinuch, Pasha Shoftim contains 41 mitzvos, 14 positive, and 27 restrictions. The Pasha begins with the mitzvah of appointing judges within the Jewish community. There is the Sanhedrin of 71, the High Court, there's only one of those for the entire nation, and that judges... Uh, especially national circumstances. It judges the king, it judges the high uh, priest, uh, it declares war if and when that is necessary for the Jewish community. There is the court of 23, which each tribe has a Sanhedrin katana of 23, which uh, tried capital cases, and then there is the court of three which judges monetary cases. The literal translation of the opening verse is Shoftim v'shotrim, literally, judges and officers to implement the judgment. Titein l'cha, you are to place b'chol she'orecha in all your cities. And I just want to tell you that while this is true, comes along the Shalah HaKadosh and he says, of course that's what the verse means but in addition to the Torah speaking to the nation and community that it is to have law courts the Torah by using the word Titein Lecha in the singular the Torah is talking to each individual and while this might not be the literal translation of the text. This is certainly understood with the Hashkafa of our Torah, and that is judges and officers shall each individual place over each of your individual Sha'arim, which are literally gates or openings which you have. And therefore, says the Shaloha Kadosh, the Torah is saying that the Torah is appointing each individual to be vigilant and careful over their five senses, the sense of sight, and therefore the shar of the uh, opening of vision, that which a person sees the taste, the sense of touch, whereby the ability to touch those things which are appropriate and those which are unfortunately inappropriate. The sha'ar of taste, the sha'ar of our hearing, and that's why, interestingly, the ear lobe fits into one's ear. The rabbis tell us that if somebody is unfortunately speaking Lashon Hora, 
you're given that immediate instinct of closing the gate. And finally, the sense of smell as to what is and what is not appropriate. And so, it is not once again by chance. We read the Torah, starting with Bereshis on the Simchas Torah and Shabbos Bereshis. We conclude the Torah annually on Simchas Torah, and we are now halfway into the book of Devarim, as we are in Chodesh Elo, two weeks away from Rosh Hashanah. The Svardim are already almost two weeks into Slichos, and therefore one could, should, stop and glean from the first Pasuk the idea that we have to govern and judge and police ourselves as well. I'd like to share with you a very interesting insight presented by Reb Eliezer Schlesinger of Eretz Yisrael in his Eile Hadvarim on the Torah and he at that point provides a very interesting insight as to on the one hand how difficult it is to do tshuva. What does that mean? To repent and change your ways. The last thing this Dvar Torah is to discourage, no, just the opposite. I just want people to realize that we're not always able to see this in ourselves. If we hear about it and can see it in others and realize that others can be so stubborn in their ways, then hopefully we can learn from their tragic mistakes and we can, please God, change our behavior. And so the first historical point coming from Tanakh, and in reality there are three examples that we're going to see from Tanakh, the first one being the case of Yoshua at the end of chapter 6 when the Jewish people successfully conquer Yericho, the first city that they captured so Yoshua number 1 imposed on the people that they were not to take for themselves of the spoils of the city because after all to the victor belong the spoils they were not the victor it was God who was the victor they didn't lose a single man in battle and therefore the spoils were to go literally to and for the holy and not for the soldiers themselves and in addition what do we find that Yoshua imposed an oath on the Jewish nation and this is the last verse uh, 
of chapter 6 in the book of Yoshua. Yoshua made the people swear the following. Orur ha'ish, cursed is the man. Lifnei Hashem before God, Asher yokum uvana esair hazos es yericho, who will in the future rise up and, re- and rebuild this city, which had been destroyed by Yoshua. Whoever builds it, what will happen? Bivchoro yias dena, with his oldest child, meaning with the death of his oldest child. He will lay its foundation and uvitsiiro yatsiv seho. And with his youngest child, the death of his youngest child, he will set up its gates, its doors. And so, this is found in the last Pasuk of chapter 6 in the book of Yoshua. We fast forward a few hundred years and we are at the last verse of Malachim Aleph. Okay, and this is chapter tw- uh, 16, verse 34. And what does it say over there? In the days of King Achav and Queen Isabella, terrible people. Biyamav, in his day, Banachiel Beso Eli Esiricho, a man called Chiel built Yericho, Baaviram Bechoro Yisda, with the death of his son Abiram, did he lay its foundation. Now stop. Put yourself in this man's mindset. Everybody was aware of this curse. Sure enough, his oldest son dies. What would you have done at that time? Well, you wouldn't have laid it. You're right. And now what? You certainly would have stopped. What is the last pasuk in chapter 16 of Malachim Aleph teach? And Nebach Nebach, with the death of Seguv, his youngest, he installed its doors. Kidvar Hashem, literally, like the word of Hashem, Asher Diber, who had spoken, Biyad Yoshua Benun. Rather than admit that he was wrong, this and we can use any negative adjective that you would want. Most foolish individual, Chiel, because he had committed himself and had everything ready prepared for the building of this city, would not call off his plans, would not admit that he was wrong, even though the truth was staring him in the face, and Lo'alenu, he sacrificed his sons, including the last one, when, after all, he did install the doors. But look at the price that he paid. And what do we learn from this? That there are some individuals 
that are so committed to their defiance of what is right that they will forgive me go down with the ship they will not be man enough to say that I was wrong heretofore and rather will continue with their foolishness and interestingly the Yalkut Shimoni in Malachim Aleph another chapter later at the beginning of chapter 18 makes the following observation that when Elio Anavi in that famous Haftorah challenges the 450 false prophets to come to Kahar HaKarmel and a Mizbeach is built whereby whichever side can bring down the fire from heaven to consume the Korban, that is the true God and Elion Elio says to the 450 false prophets, you are the majority, you go first. So what happened? Our rabbis tell us that they knew they couldn't do it. They needed somebody to be underneath the Mizbeach who would mechanically bring fire and make it look as if it came down from the heaven. And who was that person that volunteered for it? None other than Chiel. What happened? God caused a snake to come and bite him while he was under the uh, Mizbeach and he was killed. And therefore they were all proven to be false. But amazing, till the very end, he held on tenaciously. The second thing we find is that in the days of Yirmiyahu there was a false prophet. His name was Hananya bin Azor. And he told the people, don't listen to Yirmiyahu. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And Yirmiyahu prophesied that this man would die that year. He was on his deathbed, Erev Rosh Hashanah. And what were his last words to his family? Instead of saying to his family, I was wrong, Yirmiyahu was right, Hashem Elohim, no. He said, please, don't bury me today. Wait until after Rosh Hashanah so to disprove Yirmiyahu that I didn't die that year. Amazing, amazing what's on the mind of a person that even though he sees the honest truth uh, showing him in the face, he can't be big enough to say, I was wrong. And finally, Yeruvim ben Nevat, who was chosen to be the king over the ten tribes of Israel. But unfortunately, as we find at the end of the Gemara, Ta'anis, he forbade the people from going to Yerushalayim, to the Beis Hamikdash, afraid that they would join Rahavam, who was king over Yehuda and Binyamin. So what happened? The um, he he was offering incense to the idolatry, and the navi came, and the navi came to him and said, "Look here, the mizbeach that you are standing on, this altar is going to break apart, and the ash is going to fall, etc." And, listen carefully, at that point there, the 
Navi, excuse me, Yeruvim ben Navat pointed his hand, stretched out his hand, and said, catch him, take him. And what happened was his hand was paralyzed. And he says to the prophet, please help me. And what happened? The Navi helps him. And then what happens? You're not going to believe this. Vatoshov Yad HaMelech Elav, the sensation of his hand was returned to him. And literally it means it was like before. But our rabbis understand it to mean no. Not that the hand was right before, but that Yeruvim ben Nevat was like before. He too did not learn from this experience. My friends, this, these powerful lessons teach. We see it in the next one. People that are so stubborn and will unfortunately not admit that the road that they have taken is not the right one. And therefore, we pray every day. Hashem, we can't do it alone, but we want to do the right thing. Help us come back to your Torah. And therefore, Baruch Ato Hashem, you who desire tshuva, repentance of man, please help us. What a powerful lesson to learn as we approach Rosh Hashanah. Shabbat Shalom to all.
J.M. in the A.M. with Miami off of the brand new album entitled Forever, Leolam Void. 12 minutes before 9 o'clock Friday morning here at J.M. in the A.M. It's Erev Shabbos Parsha Shoftim, candlelighting at 731 here in New York. We did our Elul show for blowing earlier. Uh, Matis, of course, has J.M. Sunday this coming Sunday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern time. Make sure to be tuned in. Avrami with Saturday Night Seagull tomorrow night at 9 o'clock featuring Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler. Coming up here after J.M. in the A.M., it'll be Naomi Nachman with uh, Eliezer Franklin of Pella Poultry and Rory Weisberg of Full and Free. After that, the Arab Shabbos Show and the Arab Shabbos Music Mix, sponsored by our wonderful friends at Kedem. And, of course, uh, Harry Rothenberg, 1 o'clock today, with the, um, uh, with the Harry's blog 
uh, the video blog of uh, Parsha Shoftin that's coming up in audio fashion for us at 1 p.m. today here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, more coming up. It's the Moshav Band. A.M. in the A.M. Moshav band with Boi Vishalom. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Uh, happy birthday to Devorah Leitner. Her uh, Jewish birthday, her Hebrew birthday, was yesterday, the 5th of Elul. On one's Jewish birthday, one should give blessings. So she gives, uh, she gave one first to me, she says, and to all the listeners, health, wealth, long life, nachas. 
Um, and she says, uh, both you and tons of singles, please make weddings this year. Have a good year. May we all be in Yerushalayim soon. See Mashiach now. There you have it. Devorah Leitner, thank you. Celebrated a birthday yesterday. Happy birthday from all of us here at JMNAM. Also, I got a note this morning from uh, Daniela. Please announce people should dive in for Moshe Nachum ben Chanaliba. Again, that's Moshe Nachum ben Chanaliba. And, of course, your help with that refuah shlema is greatly appreciated. JMNAM getting set to close out another amazing week for us. Don't forget, uh, Naomi Nachman is next. All the action continues with her interview with Eliezer Franklin of Pella, po- Pella Poultry and... Rory Weisberg of Full and Free. The Erev Shabbos show and the uh, Erev Shabbos music mix all through the day brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. We'll have that for you. Tomorrow night, it's um, Avrami plus Rabbi Zwickler, another edition of Saturday Night Seagull. Sunday, it's Matis with JM Sunday beginning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. Make sure to be tuned in. And then, of course, Monday morning, starting at 6 a.m., we'll get going again. And Monday morning before 6 a.m., Bezrat Hashem, we'll have an edition of Bonus Jam. No Bonus Jam this morning. I'm sorry about that. But hopefully on uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully on um, Monday, there will be a Bonus Jam before the start of Jam in the A.M. Candle lighting in New York, 731. Time to say good job as it's journeys at Jam in the A.M. It's a very special sign.
Shabbos, all those nails won't run away. So throw away your hammer. There's nothing left to do. Go on home and find the gift that's waiting there for you. Oh, it's time to say good Shabbos. Cause all your work is done. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com on the NachumSegal Network and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up an amazing week here at JMNAME. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty coming up on... uh, on table for two with Naomi Nachman. And then, of course, our Erev Shabbos show and Erev Shabbos music mix brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. Saturday night, Seagull with Avrami tomorrow night. Matis, JM Sunday begins 7 a.m. Eastern time on Sunday morning. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Have a fabulous weekend. Until Monday, Nachum Seagull reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.